and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, we've spent a lot of Season 3 in Pennsylvania, and not without good reason. Thanks to our chapter president, Nate Odd, we've been given an excellent boots-on-the-ground explorer who has seen many of the sites we have went over personally. From haunted country lanes to astounding cryptids like the Squonk, we have covered the full spectrum of Pennsylvania strangeness. Well, my friends, buckle up, as tonight we're going to visit the state one more time this season. Maybe have a Philly cheesesteak and a rolling rock, or a yingling, or two, and listen to another round of astounding tales from the Keystone State. Well, good evening, everyone, wherever you may be. I hope that you've had a great week so far. I hope that you got to spend some time with your mums on Mother's Day. I can tell you from experience, folks, once they're gone, you never get that chance again. So I know life isn't easy, and I know we don't always see eye to eye with our parents, but make sure that you reach out and keep in touch with them when you can. Because once they're gone, that's it. No more do-overs, no more second chances. It's been a pretty good week around here, my friends. Um, the weather's been a bit up and down. Been a bit uh, rainy and warm, and then it'll cool off. We're supposed to have a couple of very cold nights in the near future. So I'm appreciative to those who have sent me some funds before so I can get some LPG or propane, as you would say, in the U.S. and uh, run the heater out here in the studio. Should be okay tonight, but uh, there will be a couple of nights this week where I'll be out here chattering if uh, I don't run the heat. Now, to the listeners in India and elsewhere in the world, including Japan, I know, and many other countries, stay safe. I buckle down with this newest wave of lockdowns. I really do feel for you. Um, no matter what your thoughts are on COVID, some people think it's all a bunch of BS and they're entitled to their opinion. But the lockdowns are still affecting people, irregardless of the reason behind it or the reality behind it. It doesn't really matter what your thoughts are on it. The bottom line is it's affecting people's lives. So especially to the listeners in India and Japan. Now, again, I don't mean to leave anyone out. I'm sure there are other countries who have went back into a much harder lockdown. But I know India and Japan have recently. So stay safe out there and take care and look after your loved ones. I've had a very busy week as well with the program. I was on a young lady's program called The Banana Show from Jamaica. She wanted to talk about something which is much more in the realm of the fortunate son, which is mental health and well-being, and specifically things like depression and anxiety. And I've not been shy about it, and I've always tried to be an open book about it on this program, that I've had my issues in life with these things. And I've had several loved ones in my life commit suicide over the years. So it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. So it was nice to get on there with Annalie and have a talk about it. And I will have a link in the social media as soon as that episode is out. But it was a good conversation and I enjoyed it. And I appreciate the fact that she's doing that and keeping this subject matter out there in the public domain, especially for younger people. I'm not quite sure how young Annalie is, but she's younger than me, so I appreciate the fact, like I say, that there are so many good people out there that continue to fight this good fight, because depression and mental illness and whatever else you want to call it, anxiety and all the other things, it affects every one of us. It doesn't judge on creed or color or sex 
or what you identify as or age. It doesn't care. It's like cancer. It strikes everyone equally. So it always is a very near and dear thing to my heart. And I do appreciate those people who continue to do it. I've had people ask me about The Fortunate Son. And the reality is, like I say, I just can't do both shows fully. It's either do one fully, which I'm doing The Paranormal Son, or kind of half and half each. And I'd rather focus on The Paranormal Son. And the reason is that there are lots of excellent people like Annalie out there working on mental health and really doing an excellent job, as good as I could. So I know that it is in good hands to leave it up to those other people. But again, I'm always here. If you, the listener, or anyone that you know has got any of these issues and you don't have anyone else to talk to, I said it on Annalise's program, and I've said it before on The Fortunate Son, and I'm saying it to you now. You have at least one person who will listen, because I will. Get a hold of me, send me a message on social media or an email, and I will do my absolute best to help you where I can. Each of our life's journeys and struggles are different, and I fully get that. But I can't empathize. I am an empath after all. And I'll do my absolute best to try and listen to your problems. And if I can, try and offer you some things that have worked for me. It is a lifelong thing. It's not, as I've said many times before, some people think that, oh, well, you just go through a low patch and then everything's okay. But this is a lifelong issue. No different than a medical issue like asthma or diabetes or something like that. You just have to manage it as best as you can. So I was also on the old 77 with Scott and Dave. Matt was away on that show, but the old 77 has always been so supportive to the program, to the Paranormal Son, and to JT the person, and I really appreciate everything they do. I mean, Matt, Scott, Dave, you're all great guys and very supportive As a matter of fact, I think that Scott's got something that he wants to say to the audience right now. Hey, this is Scott from the Old 77. Have you listened to our show? Check us out. We're the Hangout Podcast. You come hang out with a bunch of friends and just talk. And you talk about anything. I mean, like this. If Kanye dropped dead today, would you shed a tear? Deep down, would you be like, oh, Kanye. Yeah, if he dies, man, I'm sad. (laughs) I'm about to tear up right now. Oh, just dude, We've even had weird stuff happen like this. Uh, there's been a lot of stabbings in that building. Yeah, I'm sure there has been a couple of shootings. Wild Wild West. Mm-hmm. Poker games yeah, and poker shit. Game. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it was just And of course, game. who can forget guests like JT from the Paranormal Sun? In my life, like, you know, like the older generation talks about Kennedy getting shot. Real seminal moments to me that like I can come New to episodes out Tuesday on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Find us on social media and like and subscribe on YouTube. This is the one and only (laughs) Old 77. Thanks for that, Scott. Appreciate your kind words. And I've enjoyed each one of my appearances on the Old 77. Now, folks, on there, we do discuss things like UFOs and paranormal and other things. But also at the same time, I don't want you to think that's all we talk about because it is very much just friends having a chat. So I do talk about some other things. I do say some things that I wouldn't necessarily say on the old 77. And what I mean by that is I'm a little looser on there. Um, I do mix in the swear words and that liberally. So just be warned if you go over there listening to it and you got kids around, it's not something you want to listen to if you don't want them to be introduced to those words. Because on this program, on the Paranormal Sun 
it's all about the subjects. But over there, it is excellent every once in a while to get to go on there and just let my hair down, so to speak, and blow off some steam and have a good time with my friends as well. So all I'm saying, folks, is that it's definitely worth listening to. Just take it for what it is. It's much more the JT after dark, as the saying would go, me unwound and loosened up a bit and having a bit of fun. And like I say, I always appreciate the appearances over there, and I always appreciate the help that I get from the guys. I also want to mention Tanner from Cozy Cryptids. Now, Tanner is very supportive of the Paranormal Sun. He's got his own podcast called Cozy Cryptids, and he's going to be making an appearance on the Paranormal Sun in the not-too-distant future. I've got it recorded, but as I say, folks, I've got several interviews in the can, so to speak, and I've got others to release first. But as always, we we have a good uh, conversation when Tanner's on, and he, he likes to ask thoughtful questions about a lot of these things. And I'm also very appreciative of the fact that I can share some things with Tanner that I've learned over the years, certain subjects, and things that he will find interesting. And that indeed you will find interesting, because eventually I will get around to doing these subjects. But like I say, I got two or three hundred in the queue, so it's never easy. As a matter of fact, when I was on Annalise's show, I just had a very quick look at Bermudan or uh, things from Bermuda in this realm. And wow, folks, there's some excellent ones, just like there were in Barbados. So there's another show I had to add to the pile, and eventually I will get there. Now, for those of you who enjoyed the 50th episode and having the legend, the absolute legend, and the humble and oh-so-knowledgeable Lionel Fanthorpe on as a guest, Lionel will be coming back. I've been talking to Lionel off-air, and we are trying to queue up a time and date that works, and my intention is to have a, at least as many conversations as I can with Lionel. I mean, he's got his own life, obviously, but I enjoy every minute of those conversations. So I will be having Lionel back on in the future. Don't you worry about that. I've also got a few other interviews lined up, and I am trialing an online booking service. So basically, you can go on and make an appointment to be on the Paranormal Sun, or you can request me to be on your program. Now, I'm just trying to iron out the kinks, folks, because... One of the things I don't like about the program that I found is that it just basically accepts the invite. So if there was something that I wanted to change around or something a little different, it's not like an Outlook request is what I'm saying where you have to accept it. And what I really get worried about is as I get more and more of these requests, I'll have one slip past me and someone's ready to record on a certain date or time and it might be double booked or something like that. So I am working through the kinks, and eventually I will be releasing that to the quote-unquote public at large, so anyone who wants to go and just book online, they can book online. But it's been great so far. I've got, let's see, I've got two more guests booked to record with, sorry, three more guests booked to record with, and another two who I'm simply waiting for them to schedule the time. So it's, it's going really well. And I've reached out to a few other groups in some of these uh, areas that I haven't got listenership in yet because, number one, I am genuinely interested in some of the things going on in, for example, North and South Dakota or in Africa 
a lot of countries in Africa. I've got some listenership there in a few countries, but I know there's so many fascinating tales from Africa. I'd really like to get some more information on those things from people who are actually there, like we've done with Nate, like we've done with other friends of the show in different areas. Just having that boots on the ground makes all the difference in the world. And also a couple other very quick shout-outs to other podcast supporters of the show. To our chapter president in Japan, Mark Reed. Mark is the host of the Zen Sandwich podcast, and Mark had me on his program, and I really appreciate it. Mark's a really good guy, and he does a lot of excellent things. And he's always on the lookout for guests for the Paranormal Sun, and Mark and his wife make handmade Japanese paper. And when I can afford to, I want to support Mark on Patreon. And one of the cool things that Mark does is he sends these handmade postcards made of Japanese paper. So I have sent out postcards to close supporters of the show in the past, but but I didn't make them handmade, unfortunately. So, Mark, thank you so much for your support. Thanks for being the chapter president. And also to John at Boo My Dad Says. So, um... John is an excellent supporter as well, and John's in the U.S. South and does an excellent job supporting the program. And John has recently joined me at the TNC Collective along with some of the other excellent podcasters there. So, again, go and check out John's show. I've run a promo on here for him before, and I will in future. i just like to mix them up a little bit, folks. Short of getting sponsors, which maybe I'll have someday in the not-too-distant future, Short of that, I like to support my fellow podcasters and friends and people who have been very supportive of the program. And to each and every one of them, thank you. And most important of all, to you, the listeners. So from the chapter presidents and all of the great supporters that I have, like Adriana and Nico in Texas and Chris and Max in Illinois and Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, all the way to the listener who listens for their very first episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening. I couldn't have done it without you, honest to goodness. I mean, the show has grown so well in the last year. We're marching towards 60 countries listened. 60 countries around the world. That's pretty insane. I never would have thought that I would have gotten there in such a short time. So honestly, folks, from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate each and every one of you. And again, if you're wondering how you can support the program, there are many ways. I mean, of course you can support financially, but not everyone can. If you go to the Instagram page, the Paranormal Sun, so the underscore paranormal underscore sun, if you click the link in the bio there, you'll find kind of a link tree site that will take you everywhere you want to go. And I know I've said it on here several times, but I've got to get that Patreon revamped. But for the people who have supported me so far, rest assured, folks, they are getting their money's worth because I send them direct bonus episodes. And I've released a few and I'm going to be doing a few more. Right now, I'm reading a book about mysterious things, mysterious people to them, a few chapters at a time, and the goal is to get a bonus episode out to them every couple of weeks on top of everything else that I do. And there will be other things, like I say, I've just got to get around to doing it. But if you can't support the show financially, I fully understand. Times are tough. So there are other ways that you can. First and foremost, you can tell other people out there about this program and about what I do. Let them know that this is something you enjoy and maybe something that you think that they would enjoy. You can also go and like and give us feedback on the different podcast platforms. So you can give us reviews. Obviously, five stars is always 
appreciative, but be honest, you know. If there's something you think the show can improve, let me know. And you can email me directly at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. Of course, there's the website. There's a lot of ways you can help the show without spending money, folks. And one of the greatest things you can do is to help the program grow. And again, for everyone who has already, I couldn't do it without you, so I really do appreciate it. I'm sorry, one other real quick shout-out that I have for another podcaster is for Michaela at the Murder Squared podcast. Again, Michaela has been very supportive. I've tried to help Michaela as she's grown. And oftentimes, folks, some of the things that you don't see behind the scenes is that I'm in several podcast groups. And if there's someone that I see in there that's genuinely wanting to learn and needs a bit of advice or mentorship, I do everything I can to help those people out. Now, oftentimes, it's just a matter of what do you use or how did you deal with this? It's not like these people are overly needy. But I can tell you, when I first started out, there were so many times, folks, I just was a bit insecure about things and I wasn't sure how to do different things or how things best worked. So I do try and help people wherever I can. And Michaela's been so very supportive of the program. I sent in a recording to her program telling one of my stories, telling my Charles Manson story. So that was also great that she aired that. And she does a great program, so make sure you check her out as well. Now, with all of that being said, folks, we're now going to move on to the news of the damned. And for those of you who are new to the program and don't know what the news of the damned is, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort. Now, Charles Fort was interested in a lot of the things that we cover here on the program. Missing time, UFOs, sea serpents, ghosts. And so Charles Fort was one of the first people that started gathering all of these things from newspapers and other periodicals around the world, and then he was making notes and storing them up, and eventually, after saving several tens of thousands of these notes, Charles Fort released a series of books. And in these books, he published things like people vanishing in plain sight or out-of-place artifacts, items that should only be a few hundred years old being found in 40 or 50 million year old seams of coal, things like that. Well, Charles Fort released these books with some of his own thoughts and conjecture, but he always encouraged people to have an open mind, and he always said, don't put anyone up on a pedestal and only follow what they tell you to follow. He encouraged everyone to look at all of these subjects with an open mind and a fresh viewpoint. Well, Charles Fort referred to any information, any data that was ignored or excluded by science as damned data. Therefore, each time we do a new segment here on the Paranormal Sun, it's called The News of the Damned, as an homage to Charles Ford. So the first one I've got here is from the BBC. And as is often the case, I stumbled across this the other day. I wasn't looking for it. But the title of the article definitely drew me in. And you'll see why here in a second. So it says, The Unsolved Mystery of Sri Lanka's Stargate. And the other thing was, in the article, I saw these stupas, which are the Buddhist shape that's kind of shaped like a bell. And the thing is that... As I mentioned, I'm not sure if I mentioned it last week or if I mentioned it on the legendary episode, 
Anyway, I was watching this program about the De Glocke, which was the which means the bell in German, and it was a purported Nazi black secret project from World War Two. And Giorgio Sukalos was hosting this program and they were talking about this being shaped like a stupa. So anyway, it 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 caught my caught my eye very easily, let's just put it at that. So it says in recent years the internet has been alight with speculation that a chart like carving in Anuradhapura is a stargate, an ancient gateway through which humans can enter the universe. And it says by Demi Pereira, third May twenty twenty one. Now again, Sri Lanka. Now many of us know the name of that country anyway. But the other thing is, I'm sure it rings a bell to long term listeners, and the reason is I've covered several reincarnation cases from Sri Lanka, so I'm quite interested to see what this article has to say. So it says Sri Lanka's sacred city of Anuradhapura is an unlikely place to be enmeshed in a fantastic tale of UFOs and otherworldly happenings. Locally known as Rajarata, Land of Kings, the UNESCO World Heritage Site was the first established kingdom on the island in 377 BC and is at the heart of Sri Lanka's Buddhist culture. Today it's one of the nation's most visited places, attracting devoted pilgrims from around the country to its ancient Buddhist temples and giant dome-shaped stupas. But this holy city is also home to something far more curious. Here in Renmasu Uyana, Golden Fish Park, a 40-acre ancient urban park surrounded by three Buddhist temples, is a chart that's alleged to be a map to unlock the secrets of the universe. And they've got a photo of it here in the article. And it is very interesting. Measuring about 1.8 meters in diameter, Sekwala Chakraya, which translates to Universe Cycle in Sinhalese, is shallowly carved onto a low rock face among the protected park ruins. Its front facade can only be seen from ground level. In fact, four seats have been sculpted into a flat rock surface opposite to provide the ideal viewing area. Both the map and seats, which are also of mysterious origin, have puzzled historians, archaeologists, and academics for more than a century. Ranmasu Uyana was used for a prolonged period in history, says Professor Raj Samadeva, Senior Professor of Archaeology at the University of Kelanaya, Sri Lanka. The second major development phase seems to have begun in the 7th century CE, or the 600s AD. During that period, several new buildings were added to the earlier garden layout. The chart could be a work of this period, but it's impossible to know because its existence function or anything related to it, is not mentioned in any historic records, which were meticulously kept by Buddhist monks. While little is known about the chart and its purpose, the iconography is incompatible with other carvings of the, of the period, 3rd century to 10th century AD, so from the 200s AD to 900s AD. The chart center is made up of seven concentric circles, divided by parallel vertical and horizontal lines. Rectangular compartments contain small cross circles. To the untrained eye, there are figures resembling umbrellas or bows and arrows, a kite, wavy lines, and cylindrical shapes. An outer ring depicts marine animals, fish, turtles, and seahorses. When compared to other carvings from the same period, such as the Sandak Ada Pahana 
which depicts vines, swans, and a lotus, all typical of Buddhist iconography, the chart is without religious context, leaving it without an obvious explanation as to why it is here. This has left it wide open to online speculation. Before the dawn of the internet, the chart garnered little attention in Sri Lanka. It is thought to have survived here, tucked away at the edge of a boulder, after the fall of the kingdom, unremarkable in comparison to its breathtaking surroundings, complete with twin ponds and bathing pavilions believed to have been used by kings. In fact, if aliens did arrive on Earth through here, they couldn't have picked a nicer place. These sacred temple grounds, cloaked in thick tropical jungle, are mostly uninhabited and protected by the authorities. The first academic to note the chart's archaeological importance was H.C.P. Bell, a British civil servant appointed as the first commissioner of archaeology of Ceylon, which was Sri Lanka's former name. Bell included a description of the chart in the 1911 report for the governor of Ceylon, where he concluded that this ancient map of the world, perhaps the oldest in existence, is of quite extraordinary interest. Its presence testifies to the antiquity of that astronomical lore still pursued in some of Buddhist monasteries of Ceylon. While the chart does not resemble a map in a modern sense, Bell wrote that it depicts an old-time cosmo cosmographical chart illustrating in naivest simplicity the Buddhist notions of the universe. He interpreted the circles, the symbols, and marine life on the chart based on his knowledge of Buddhism on the island to mean the earth, the seas, outer space, and the universe. While discussions around the chart for many years were mainly confined within academic circles due to its historically important location, the explosion of photo sharing on social media over the last few years has shown a global spotlight on the mystery. Eagle-eyed tourists have remarked on parallels between the charts and similar sites in other countries that are believed by some to be stargates, ancient gateways through which humans could enter the universe. Their theory goes that the chart holds the secret code for unlocking the portal. Conspiracy theorists noted, uh, I just love that term, that the stargate of uh, uh, this stargate had near identical shapes and symbols to those found at Abu Ghraib in Egypt and La Puerta de Hayu, Maraca in Peru. The most striking similarity, it said, as speculation around Sri Lanka's stargate reached its peak, is its proximity to water. The nearby Tissa Weva re Reservoir, built in 300 BC, has been thrown around as conclusive evidence since both Abu Ghraib and La Puerta de Hayu Marca were also built near water, which, according to the Stargate theory, allowed extraterrestrial beings to process gold from Earth's water. Well, <laughs> most things back then were built near water because you need a source of water for the people who are building it. This otherworldly theory has been further fueled by the chart's proximity to, Dang to Danigala Mountain, also known as Alien Mountain, in the nearby secret city of Polonarua. Danigala, which lies deep in the jungle and is popular with hikers, has a unique circular shape and is entirely flat top. This led internet sleuths to conclude that it must have, at one time, been used for UFO landings. Strangely, according to Sri Abhi, Abhi Wikrama, a local tour guide, villagers in the area do believe that alien mountains attract more shooting stars and thunder and lightning above it than anywhere else. However, according to Samadeva, there is little archaeologically to suggest that it's a stargate. Instead, Samadeva believes a more sensible conclusion is that the chart is an early map of the world, as suggested by Bell, 
because that explanation has religious and cosmological context that is logical given the period and place and time. According to Samadeva, at least since 250 BCE, Sri Lankans had a clear idea of objects in the sky and outer space. In early Brahmi inscriptions found in Sri Lanka, there are a number of names that refer to specific stars and concepts related to astronomy. One of the inscriptions in Kirindia, a religious and historic site on Sri Lanka's southern coast, contains the phrase Aparamita Loka Datuya, meaning the infinite universe. What it suggests is that the person who engraved it had a very good understanding of the nature of the universe they lived in. However, Shireen Almendra, senior lecturer of landscape designs at the University of Maratua, Sri Lanka, offers a different, more earthly perspective. I think the Sakwala Chiraya chart is a plan for a complex project similar to the enormous stupas that were being built at the time, she said. I lean towards it being a plan for Sigiriya. Sigiriya is one of Sri Lanka's most recognized ancient landmarks, a 5th century BC rock fortress, complete with flowing water, landscape gardens, and multiple living quarters. It lies just half an hour away from Anuharapura within Sri Lanka's cultural triangle, which is made up of three important ancient cities. Given that, that the three seats carved in front of the chart appear to slightly face towards each other, it makes me think that it was a place for discussion, an ancient ar architect's office, if you like, she said. If the seats were built for a religious purpose, such as meditation, they would be in a straight line instead. According to Samadeva, the greatest challenge in identifying the function of the chart has been the lack of evidence to correctly date it. While Ranmasu Uyana and other parks and stupas are mentioned in chronicles and inscriptions dating as far back as 250 BC, the Sakwala Ch Chakraya is not described in any historical records. There would definitely have been a practical use for the diagram, but it's a huge challenge to figure out what that might have been when we can't correctly date it, he said. So it seems that Sri Lanka's enigmatic alleged stargate remains shrouded in mystery, its purpose and meaning still lost to time. The chart's newly acquired cult status among sci-fi enthusiasts, however, has finally given it some well-deserved public attention. Thanks to their enthusiasm and the power of social media, it has finally stepped out of the shadow of larger-than-life Anuradhapura to stand apart on its own. So, look folks, that's a very interesting little article, and I hadn't heard of this site. I knew that Sri Lanka has been settled for many thousands of years, but I hadn't heard of this site, and I hadn't heard of this purported Stargate. So, very interesting one, and I hope that you enjoyed that as well. Now, the next few here, folks, we'll get through very quickly because they're videos, but still interesting, and I have watched these videos in advance this time, so I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually up to it. We don't have to pause for me to watch. So, these two are from Coast to Coast AM. And the first one here is Watch Lake Monster Appears in Background of Golf Tournament. Television viewers watching the Wells Fargo Championship Golf Tournament over the weekend were taken aback when they noticed a monstrous-looking fin suddenly emerge out of the water behind one of the players. The weird scene reportedly unfolded on Sunday afternoon as Keith Mitchell was, putting, was putting at the 17th hole of Charlotte's Quail Hollow Club, which hosted the PGA event. The seemingly routine moment during the tournament took a strange turn when a rather sizable fin popped out of the water behind the golfer as he was watching to see where his ball went on the green. 
One eagle-eyed viewer at home noticed the appearance of the curious aquatic creature and quickly took to social media, wondering what the oddity in the background could have been. In keeping with such proverbial guessing games online, the answers range from the prosaic, such as a turtle or a fish, to the fantastic, including what one in one individual dubbed the quail nest monster. An answer was eventually provided by the director of communications for the Wells Fargo Championship, who told a local media outlet in North Carolina that the creature was most likely a very large catfish. Well, folks, look, I lived in the Midwest for many years, and we have our share of catfish. And we have our share of something else, which, as to me, I'm sure what this is. It looks like a turtle coming up for air. Um, you can see the little kind of beak nose in the front. That's what I think it is. Anyway, you go and check it out yourself. There's a link in the show notes, as always, if you want to check it out. But I'm convinced it's a turtle. Um, would take quite a bit to convince me otherwise. And usually I don't make such definitive statements on the program, but in this case, I'm pretty darn sure it's a turtle. Now, on to the next one, which has also got a video component. And this one says, Hudson Valley Woman reports series of strange Sasquatch sightings. A woman living in New York's Hudson Valley claims to have spotted Bigfoot lurking in her backyard on multiple occasions, and she believes that, on one odd occasion, the famed cryptid moved her garbage cans, according to a local media report. Jane Vespe says she first saw the creature outside her home in the community of Highland back in January, and since that time, it has popped up on her property an additional three times, with the most recent appearance being this past Thursday. I saw the eyes, she recalled. It stood about 10 to 11 feet tall, and my heart was racing. After noticing that the creature had returned last week, Vespi managed to capture some video of what she says are menacing eyes of Bigfoot. These eyes were really red, and I looked out my window and I saw it, the witness marveled. It was scary because it was standing on my lawn, and I knew it was out there. In addition to the video footage, Vespi has taken several photographs of anonymous, anomalous marks on her yard, which she believes were left behind by the Sasquatch. Beyond the Bigfoot sightings themselves, Vespi said she often hears strange noises outside of her home, and something seemingly sizable smashed her shed, as well as banged up the side of the house. Attributing these events to Sasquatch, the Hudson Valley resident also noted one incident in which she suspects that the creature carried her garbage cans across her lawn. What do you make of Vespa's odd account? And again, there's a link in the show notes, but to me, folks, the video is not very good. It's basically a very shaky camera and a couple of equidistant apart kind of glowing lights of some kind. So could it be eyes? Yeah, but... What I'm saying is, if you don't believe in Bigfoot, this footage isn't going to change your mind. Um, th there were a lot of comments on it when I read it about people saying it was a pissed-off bear that was woken up. But again, bears' eyes don't glow in the dark like this. But nonetheless, it yeah, you know, go and check it out, especially if you're a Bigfoot fan. But uh, on a quality of 1 to 10, and 10 being the Gimlin-Patterson footage, this is like a 1. So it's nothing that's going to really excite you too much, I don't think. But nonetheless, there's a link in the show notes, and you can go and check it out over there yourself and watch the very short video. I think it was about eight seconds off the top of my head. Now on to the next one, which is about Mars. This is an interesting one from Coast to Coast. And it says, Study suggests mushrooms grow on Mars. A thought-provoking new study from a team of scientists who examined images of Mars 
argues that the red planet is rife with mushrooms and other fungi that can be seen growing over the course of time. The intriguing hypothesis was laid out in a paper published this week in the journal Advances in Microbiology. The researchers behind the study looked at sequential images taken by the Opportunity rover and the HIRISE satellite, which orbits Mars, and in the process, notified, noticed objects on the surface of Mars changing dramatically in a manner suggesting they could be alive. For example, as seen in the separate images above, and there's a couple of images here, um, which have got things that look like globes on them, the team noted that in the first photo, nine spherical and semi-spherical specimens lay upon the coarse grain sand of Meridiana planum. However, in an image taken just three days later, those original objects seem to have grown considerably, and now there are 12 of the curiously shaped oddities in the same spot. Beyond the baffling spherical anomalies, the paper cites several other cases wherein it appears as if the surface of Mars sports a variety of mold, lichen, algae, method methogens, and sulfur-reducing species. Based on their analysis, the scientists posit that the different types of fungi grow in cycles that are in keeping with the seasons on the red planet. If all of this sounds familiar, that's because the mushroom on Mars theory has been bandied about since at least 2004, when the spherical oddities first spotted on the Mars Global Surveyor were confirmed and photographed by the Opportunity rover. Over time, the anomalies have become something of a continuous issue, sorry, contentious issue, as scientists at the space agency say they are merely a mineral formation known as hematite. How, however, not unlike fungi itself, the Martian mushrooms hypothesis has continued to pop back up by ways of various rogue scientific papers every few years. As one might imagine, the mainstream astronomical community is skeptical of the idea that the red planet is teeming with mushrooms and other types of fungi because they contend the harsh conditions on Mars are not conducive to such organisms. Based on sheer array of different kinds of fungi, the new paper purports to have documented, it seemed that the debate is unlikely to end until a more sustained presence on the red planet is developed and these various anomalies can be examined in greater detail. What's your take on the Martian mushroom hypothesis? So folks, again, there's a link in the show notes to look at the photos. But again, it's just some photos with circles on them. So it's nothing overly mind-blowing. But yeah, I mean, if, if they find out that there are mushrooms there, and there have been all kinds of rumors. So obviously, you go back over 100 years, people thought there was intelligent life on Mars with canals and everything else. Then we went through a long period where it was like, oh, there's nothing there. And now in the last 20 to 30 years, we're getting a lot of this. Well, there could be life, just not intelligent life. So I do find it interesting how this narrative keeps moving back and forth. But is it a an, is it a preconditioning to prepare us if they do find life on Mars or if they find ancient structures or something? Who knows? But at the rate we're going, uh, if people turn up on Mars, it will be quite interesting to see what they actually find and what will be disclosed because again i highly doubt that they're just going to be running live feed all the time just in case they do run into something that's just the skeptical side of jt so i hope you enjoyed that one as well and that's it for the news of the damn this week folks pretty light on the whole ufo side of things out there this week i mean there's a story about demi lovato hosting a show about ufos but no offense to Demi Lovato, and like I often say, sometimes it's good 
to have exposure no matter who it is, but just because you've seen a UFO doesn't necessarily mean you're the type of person I want to see host a show about UFOs. Uh, nothing personal against Demi Lovato. It's not like I know her, but she's just not my first choice for someone I really want to be out there fronting this subject matter. So yeah, I decided to skip that article. Now, we're going to be getting into the fourth installment of our strange, odd, weird, Fortean-type stuff out of Pennsylvania. And again, I just want to dedicate this to the chapter president in Pennsylvania, Nate Odd, and also to the chapter president from New York, Skinwalker Ranch on Instagram, as she lived in Pennsylvania for many years, went to college there. So get yourself a drink, be it adult beverage or non-alcoholic, something you'll enjoy. Sit down, relax, and enjoy these 18 tales of the strange, unusual, and downright bizarre from the state of Pennsylvania. Well, my friends, you're in for a treat. I have 18 more locations, creatures, and tales that I do believe you will be fascinated by. Nate, I'll bet you a six-pack of Mothman Black IPA that some of these you would have barely heard of, and if so, I'm happy I could introduce you to something new. So the first one is America's Unknown Child, the boy found in a box, and this story is from Philadelphia in the southeast. As you walk through the imposing gatehouse of Philadelphia's Ivy Hill Cemetery, on a summer's afternoon, just about the first thing you see is a blaze of colorful flowers at the left-hand fork in the road. These annual blooms grow so high, they almost cover the black granite gravestone behind them. You usually see more bright colors along the top of the stone, in the form of teddy bears, plastic toys, and silver coins. It seems as though everyone who stops by and sits on the memorial bench near the monument feels compelled to leave some tribute to the departed, and they do this because the poor soul beneath the stone died without anything. He didn't even have a name. His grave marker calls him America's unknown child, but for 40 years he was better known by the sordid circumstances of his death. He was referred to as the boy in the box. In February 1957, this boy was found dead, clothed only in a threadbare sheet and stuffed in a large cardboard box. The box had been shoved in the undergrowth, besides Susquehanna Street in the Fox Chase part of town. In those days, Susquehanna Street was a weed-ridden, semi-rural street and a popular dumping ground. The box would have aroused no suspicion there, and the boy might have stayed there undiscovered for weeks, except that a student out for a walk became curious and opened the box. Inside he found a bruised and frail-looking boy no older than seven. His hair had been hacked clumsily off, after his death in an effort to make him harder to recognize. Except for the box and blanket, there was no other evidence at the site. By following a path trodden through the undergrowth from the box, investigators found a blue corduroy cap, but this was so generic, it did nothing to help the investigation. Other odds and ends dumped by the roadside, including a boy's pair of shoes, turned out to be unconnected with the case. Postmortem examinations on the boy revealed that he had died of blunt force trauma, and was bruised in many places, but none of his bones had been broken. 
The boy had a healed hernia operation scar on his groin, an intravenous cut-down scar on his ankle, both of which showed he had received professional medical care. Over the next few months, the media and police cast the net wide. Photographs of the dead boy appeared on newspapers and posters throughout the area. Doctors were asking about young male patients treated for hernias and blood transfusions, but despite intensive investigation, no solid leads appeared. More than 45 years later, the boy's identity and his killers are still a mystery, but the investigation continues. The boy was exhumed in the late 1990s for DNA testing, and around that time, the case appeared on America's Most Wanted. This TV profile turned up more leads, some of which didn't pan out, some of which are still under investigation. Around the time the story appeared on television, the boy in the box got his new name and burial ground, courtesy of Philadelphia's Unsolved Crime Club the Vidocq Society. This exclusive club consists of more than 80 professional investigators and forensic experts, and many of them have a personal stake in the case. Some of the original investigators involved with the crime are now prominent members of the society. Until 1998, the boy was buried in a potter's field under a plain stone with the simple inscription, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy, followed by the date the body was found. This stone now sits at the front of the plot where the boy now lies. The Vidic Society has held annual memorials at the new burial site in an effort to keep the case and that of all missing and abused children fresh in the minds of the public. In the background, quietly and efficiently, they continue to work at solving the case. At one of the services held at the site, the commissioner of the Vidic Society, William Flesher, explained the group's position. We are validating this little boy's life, said William Flisher. Our mission is to go forward from this day and put a name on that tombstone. In early 2001, the boy also became the subject of a serious and exhaustive website at www.americasunknownchild.net. If you have any clues or leads, check out the huge amount of evidence at this site. After all these years, it would be good to have a name on that stone. Yeah, folks, that's really a heartbreaking tale. And there's nothing worse than seeing young children murdered and basically just thrown away. That one really got to me. The next one is a little bit less morbid. This is the story of the Rosicrucian Pyramids, Pennsylvania's mysterious pyramids from Buck County in the southeastern part of the state. By the side of a small side road between Quakertown and Dublin in Bucks County stands a memorial garden that's no longer open to the public. It used to be a place of quiet reflection and peaceful meditation, but the group that ran it closed it down and painted no trespassing signs all around it. Much of the garden is now hidden behind overgrown shrubs, but, but poking through the undergrowth are two large pyramids and a mystery that goes back hundreds of years. The land is owned by a Christian mystical sect called the Fraternitas Rosae Crucis, literally translated as the Brotherhood of the Rose Cross. They're better known as Rosicrucians, and they have been a secretive but major presence in Pennsylvania since before the Revolutionary War. The Bucks County property, with the pyramids, is a place of worship and a training facility, but nobody outside the order really knows what goes on there. From the roadside, you can sometimes hear chants and catch a tantalizing glimpse of people in robes, but apart from that, the place is veiled in mystery. Anyone wandering around the property without permission is reportedly chased off. Like many secretive organizations, the Rosicrucians deal in symbols. Pyramids loom large in their symbology, 
and even their name contains two powerful ciphers. The cross obviously reflects their Christian beliefs, but the rose has more ancient pagan origins. In Roman times, this flower was a symbol of secrecy. The legend went that Cupid gave Hippocrates, the god of silence, a rose in exchange for keeping Venus's secrets. Roman banquet rooms were decorated with roses as a reminder to keep any confidences that were spoken under the influence of wine. This decorative habit gives the English language a real SAT-style word for secrecy, sub rosa, or under the rose. Kind of like that old story, folks, that what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. Of course, this veil of secrecy means that it's hard to get any solid details about the Rosicrucian order, but one of two elements are clear. The order grew in Germany with the 1614 publication of a book called Fama Fraternatus, describing the travels of a symbolic figure called Christian Rosencruz through Damascus, Egypt, and other biblical places. In these travels, the mythic character gathers the secret wisdom of the order, whose true origins in nature are now lost to anyone outside of the order. The book attracted many mystical Christian groups, such as Gnostics, Pythagoreans, Magi, and the Freemasons, into an umbrella organization that shares many secret symbols. The most obvious symbol is the pyramid, which fe features prominently in Rosicrucian architecture. By the roadside at the front of the Bucks County Rosicrucian Garden is a yard-high pedestal that looks quite normal at first, but on closer investigation turns out to be a topless pyramid. It, it's lined up perfectly through the bushes with a second pier pyramid more than five feet tall. This in turn lines up with a large pyramid-shaped mausoleum with bronze plates on it commemorating members of the order. This mausoleum gives tantalizing hints as to the structure and nature of the order. Those commemorated include members of the Supreme Councils of Nine, Seven, and Three, with titles such as Supreme Grand Master, Member Sublime Third, and the Hierophant. Now folks, where have you heard the Hierophant before? That's right. Thanks to Timmy from Ace of Cups Readings, we know that the Hierophant is one of the tarot cards, and it's one of the major arcana. And if that wasn't enough, folks, the Hierophant is also the card that represents 2021, remember? So here it comes up again in a way that I never would have thought it would. So the organization seems more egalitarian than many religions, since many of those named are women, and there have been some very influential members, including Benjamin Franklin and Abraham Lincoln. Looking inside of the pyramid, you get a clear idea of the symbols of the order. Over the gated doorway stands a circular plate with a winged world crowned by skull and crossbones, with the word try, T-R-Y, underneath it. The torch, anchor, and triangle in the design only confuse the uninitiated further. Peeking through the gate into the pyramid, however, gives you a jolt of recognition. On two walls of the four-sided pyramid are two very familiar circular designs an unfinished pyramid topped with an eye, and an eagle holding an olive branch, and 13 arrows. These are the two sides of the Great Seal of the United States, as portrayed on the reverse side of the dollar bill. So why are these seals hidden inside a Rosicrucian monument? Is the order tipping its hat to the United States? Is it worshipping the mighty dollar? Or is this country actually being branded with the seal of a secret society? One piece of evidence at the Bucks County site leads to an inescapable conclusion. It is cast in bronze and screwed to the outside of the pyramid, and it's the name of a prominent Council of Nine member, Benjamin Franklin. 
If one of the founding fathers of this country was a celebrated Rosicrucian, why wouldn't the symbol of the new nation and its currency reflect that affiliation? So next time you look at the all-seeing eye in the sky on a dollar bill, remember that there's a similar eye inside a pyramid near Noxamixon State Park, and take time to wonder what other secrets might be hidden there beneath the rose. Now, here's something I found written by Amy McCormick, and it's called The Pyramids of the Rosy Cross. I spent about a month researching our local cult, a band of people up in the woods who dress in medieval-looking robes and perform strange rituals at night. Turns out they're a Church of Rosicrucians, a Christian mystical sect started in Europe in the 1100s with the Knights Templar and brought to the New World by German immigrants. A band of them have set up shop right in my backyard. Their church and grounds are hidden back in the woods and have a lot of beautiful, if bizarre, buildings on the grounds. A gray stone pagoda, a tiled pyramid that may be a tomb for a founding member, and a utility shed with a giant lightning rod. They have a huge white Greco-Roman temple way back in the woods. I and others visited this temple a few times. At the summer solstice, they stand around the pyramids in ceremonial robes and chant loudly. I have seen this and was subsequently chased away by these people. They are strange and unfriendly, but not really dangerous. And again, that's from Amy McCormick. So fascinating tale out of Bucks County, folks. And if I was there, I would definitely want to go and check that out. So the next one is The Legend of Betty Knox, and this is from Fayette County in the southwestern part of the state. So this is fairly close to you, Nate. Between Ohipyle and Dunbar in Pennsylvania's Fayette County lies the Dunbar Mountains, and that's where Betty Knox and her legend originates. Betty was born in 1842 on a farm at Kentucky Knob atop the Great Gorge of the Unigany, which is Remember the Y River from our earlier episodes? It's now Ohio Pile State Park. Her mother died when she was three, and her father raised her as a son. She did all the hard work of a 19th century farmer, clearing, plowing, planting, weeding, and reaping. In between, she raised the cattle, cut the wood, drove the ox teams, and of course cooked the meals. When she was 17, her father died, and she was left to her own devices. Betty, despite the hard work, had turned out to be a beautiful, flaxen-haired girl and had no shortage of suitors being lovely, single, and a property owner to boot. But she spurned all the locals and lived a solitary life. Knox earned her daily bread by hauling grain to Ferguson's Mill near Dunbar, powered by her oxen and returning with flour, a day-long, 25-mile trek. In fact, she traveled such an undeviated route that she carved her own trail through the forest, where her journey across Dunbar Creek is still known locally as Betty Knox Park, along with the freshwater spring that she lined with stone. One evening in 1862, while on the way home from the mill, she found a badly wounded soldier who told her he had deserted from the Union Army. Betty took the soldier home, hid him from the army, and nursed his wounds. She became smitten by the soldier, but despite long months of Betty's TLC, he finally died. Knox, although heartbroken, returned to her routine. Years later, Betty, who had never missed a day of work in her life, suddenly quit showing up to collect the farmer's grain. Alarmed, the neighbors went to her home to see if she was sick, but the house was empty. Search parties swept the forest and retraced her trail, but found not a sign of her. Theories concerning her disappearance abounded. Some claimed that wolves or a panther had attacked her, while others darkly speculated that a rejected lover had ambushed her, or perhaps a gang of thieves. 
Others thought that she had never gotten over losing her soldier and plunged to her death in the Wye River. It may have been that she was just tired of her life in the woods, pulled up roots, and found a new home. To this day, no one really knows. The following spring, some children found the skeleton of an ox chained to a tree near Betty Spring. Odd, because the very trail had been scoured by her search party without finding the ox, and also because Knox never used a chain on her animals. Still, that didn't explain what happened to Betty Knox. But one thing is certain. Betty Knox is still around, at least in spirit. Young couples out for a late-night drive claim to hear the mournful lolling of oxen miles from the nearest farm. Park visitors report hearing her sobbing. Sportsmen tell of a pale feminine form that flickers through the trees before daylight. Others report seeing a woman leading an oxen team along the trail. And on some dark nights, the pained voice of a young man can be barely heard whispering, Betty Knox, Betty Knox. As a footnote, you may not have to worry about running into Betty's ghost. An enterprising local claimed to have captured it in a mason jar, and he sold it on eBay for $2.51. Now there's a legend for you, and at a blue light price. <laughs> Some of my older audience members will uh, will get that one. If you're curious, Betty Knox Park is now part of the State Gamelands, located off the Dunbar to Ohio Pile Road, about three miles from Dunbar. Look for a game commission building on the right at a sharp curve. The gravel road to the right of the shed, called Betty Knox Road, but without any signage, will take you along Dunbar Creek to where Betty's oxen were found. Now, folks, we're into a very fascinating one, and this one also is from Fayette County, and this is The Legend of the White Rocks. Near Fairchance in, in Fayette County, there's a precipice called White Rock. It's a lover's leap where New Salem's 18-year-old Polly Williams met her doom in 1810 according to centuries-old local lore. The story goes that a neighborhood rich man, Philip Rogers, had promised to take her as a wife, but kept putting her off. Wanting to become an honest woman, Polly pressured the issue. He finally told her to see him at the top of White Rock late one night. It was their favorite meeting spot, but when their last conversation there was overheard in bits and pieces through the evening breeze, it wasn't lovers cooing, but an argument about their wedding. Some versions say that the debate ended when he pushed her to her death. Others claim she jumped in frustration at Roger's betrothal betrayal. Deep scratches in the stones from her fingers supposedly remain along the edge of the sandstone cliff. The next day, her father found her body on the rocks of White Rock Hollow below, shattered after plunging 60 feet through the air. Rogers took off and joined the army. But he returned to the scene of the crime after the war, according to one version, and filled with remorse over William's fate, took the leaf himself, as told in Charles Skinner's Myths and Legends of Our Own Land. In Cian O'Hanlon's Lincoln's Yarn, written up in County Chronicles, the Cad Rogers was tried in court and found innocent, since no one could prove whether he actually did the dirty deed, or she leapt to her own demise. Her grave is located in Little White Rock's Methodist Cemetery on Hopwood Fairchance Road, and its epitaph reads, Polly Williams, 1792-1810. Behold with pity, you that pass by here, do the bones of Polly Williams lie, who was cut off in tender bloom by a vile wretch, her pretended groom. Not much doubt about which story the locals bought into, hey? But the tale wasn't quite over. It is said Polly still haunts the cliff, searching for her lover, through its fog and mist. 
Even in the afterlife, she will not rest until she's wearing that diamond ring, folks. A reader posted that White Rocks is now owned by the Pennsylvania DCNR. It is state land open to the public. There is an access gate across from Little White Rock Church. No parking, though, so park across at the cemetery, and you can also see Polly's gravesite. White Rock has always been a fairly popular site for rockhounds and hikers, so feel free to take a climb and see if Polly is still out there looking for love. Now this next one, folks, is a very fascinating one, and I found it extremely interesting. It's time to hear about the Swamp Angel from North Bend in Clinton County in the central northern part of the state. North Bend, Pennsylvania lies in the northern part of Clinton County, the oldest community in Chapman Township. It's located along the newest section of the Elk Scenic Drive on the Bucktail Scenic Byway in the Pennsylvania Wilds. When it was founded in the 1800s, the original name was Young Womanstown. The swamps of northern Clinton County once contained quicksand, according to the stories. In the old days, some escaped slaves captured a Native American brave and maiden and killed the man. The woman, grieving, escaped from them and drowned herself in the quicksand. This actually coordinates pretty well with the actual history up in that neighborhood. It's uncertain where the name exactly came from. There are several possible stories behind it. All of them seem to involve the death of a young woman, usually Native American, in or around what is still called Young Woman's Creek. In his history of Center and Clinton Counties, John Blair Lynn makes an attempt at explaining at least some of the stories. The book says, A legendary tale there is that the Indians killed a young woman who could walk no further, and if the Indians camped there at night, her ghost would appear, gliding above the surface of the stream. There are numerous other legends, but all begin with the statement that the body of a woman was found in the creek. According to some stories, the spirit would help you if you went to the swamp and asked. This spirit became known as the Swamp Angel. The Swamp Angel was said to appear as a glowing sort of fireball. According to most of the stories, the Swamp Angel was a ghost who wasn't vengeful and would help out those who asked, if they needed it really badly. Meanwhile, there, there was a witch. If you believe all of the old legends, about every third woman up there was a witch. She got angry at a woman named Maud and cast a spell on her and her unborn baby. The baby was delivered by a woman named Liz. According to the story, the baby was born mutated, like a half-grown monkey, and Maud died immediately after, and her ghost haunted Liz. Liz went to Loop Hill Ike. He was Isaac Gaines, an old farmer who dodged the Civil War and lived up in that area. And you're also going to hear more about Loop Hill Ike later on. Loop Hill Ike took Liz to see the Swamp Angel. He burned a plant called Foxfire, which was apparently the way you contacted the Swamp Angel back then. After three nights of doing this, the Swamp Angel came and told them that Liz would have to sleep in Maud's bed for three nights, and that Loop Hill Ike was the only one who could kill the witch. Liz went and slept in Maud's bed for three nights and was visited by the ghost each night. On the third night, Maud's ghost faded away and was never seen again. Meanwhile, Loop Hill Ike got to work. He made an image of the witch, sort of like a voodoo doll. He stuffed it with a weed called Demon's Delight, and then he shot a silver bullet through it and threw it into the fire. The next day, Ike went to visit one of the farmers who lived near the witch. As they talked, a deer ran out in front of them. The farmer shot at it, but missed. The bullet went through the witch's window and killed her instantly. As she fell, she knocked over the cook stove, and her cabin burned down. Ike let the farmer think it was just an accident, and not a magical spell. As Lupil Ike has been in the first McGonagall Cemetery for just over a century now, 
it's probably safe to assume he's dead. As for the Swamp Angel, perhaps she's still out there. Perhaps if you really need her, you could go out to the swamp and ask for help. Let me know how that goes, folks. Now the next one, folks, we've already touched on a bit of giant snakes in Pennsylvania, but this is specifically the giant snakes in Adams County, which is in, in the central southern part of the state. Giant snakes of 15 to 40 feet in length and a foot in diameter have been reported from the 1800s through the early years of this century. By comparison, the largest confined native species of snake, the black rat snake, might grow longer than 7 feet, if you're lucky. Most modern reports of giant snakes originate in the mountains of southern Pennsylvania, from northwestern Adams County, west through Franklin, Fulton, Bedford, and Somerset counties. The broad-top mountain area of Fulton and Bedford counties has been a particular hotspot for modern-day reports as recently as 2003. Some of the earliest reports came in the 1870s, including a reported nest of giant reptiles at Devil's Den on Big Round Top at Gettysburg, and a 25 to 35 foot long black snake swallowing chickens and cats on farms near Allentown. Specimens and photos of the giant snakes have never been produced. While historical accounts of giant snakes may have been rooted in something real, more modern reports are probably based on escaped or discarded reptiles from the pet trade, according to Lauren Coleman, founder of the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. Boa constrictors, a staple of the pet snake hobby, can press the lower limits of the size reported from the giant snakes. Pythons, another of the more common pet snakes, have no trouble achieving sizes well within that range. It seems every year brings new reports of even larger anacondas. Statistics on snakes grown beyond the capacity of their owners and released into the wild are not commonly available, but it is a known and widespread method of disposal of the animals. Escapes also are not unheard of in the pet snake trade. In many parts of the southern U.S., such as the Everglades in Florida, discarded and escaped exotic snakes are playing havoc with the native wildlife and ecosystems. A Pennsylvania winter likely would do in the exotic snakes, which generally originate in much warmer climes, but not before a large reptile could be spotted many times over several months of its freedom. Now, folks, this is one of the oldest and most historically significant cities in the U.S., and that is, of course, Philadelphia. And this is the tale of the Washington Square ghosts from Philadelphia, and of course, this is in the southeastern part of the state. Washington Square is one of five city squares that William Penn himself designated when he designed Philadelphia, and Washington Square was the first official public burial ground, although burials at Washington Square ceased in the early 1800s. Additionally, Washington Square houses the remains of about 2,000 Revolutionary War soldiers, both British and colonial soldiers, who were oftentimes wounded in battle and who died in local hospitals before being buried here. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier of the Revolutionary War features an eternal flame commemorating those brave soldiers. Sometimes haunted locations are unexplainable. No deaths, no tragedies. We know they're haunted, but we don't know why. But when it comes to Washington Square, we know exactly where the poltergeist activity stems from. Burials. Southeast Square, as it was originally called, was laid out in 1682. As the city grew, the need for space allotted to burials increased. The square began to be used as a potter's field from 1704 to 1794. 
Potter's Fields were the designated burial places for paupers, foreigners, and those who weren't considered worthy of a Christian burial. No wonder these poor souls are so restless. People were buried with the bare minimum, no casket, wrapped up in a canvas fabric. Today, hundreds of years later, Washington Square visitors still encounter the ghosts of early Pennsylvanians put to rest there. Leah's Ghost According to legend, Washington Square is haunted by the ghost of a Quaker woman named Leah. Centuries ago, Leah protected the burial ground from grave robbers, even though most people buried at the site were poor. This wasn't always the case. Take the Carpenters, for example, a prominent Philadelphia family. They separated a burial site for their family at the center of the square due to one of their members committing suicide. This rendered her unworthy of Christian burial. Grave robbers were known to scope out these prominent internments, dig up the fresh graves, and steal the items the corpses were buried with. Men known as resurrectionists would resort to body snatching in order to obtain the cadavers to sell to physicians for their anatomical studies. And that's where Leah comes in. It's said that in life she monitored the grounds, walking around the square with a lantern and scaring off potential grave robbers and body snatchers. Even today, some who have visited the park at night feel as if they're being followed and watched by an unseen presence. Some even swear they've seen a bright light floating through the grounds. Could it be Leah with her lantern? Revolutionary War Ghosts At the center of Washington Square, you'll find the tomb of an unknown Revolutionary War soldier. Yes, an actual tomb, with remains in the middle of the park. In the 1950s, the Washington Square Planning Committee decided to commission a memorial for Revolutionary War soldiers buried at the park. Since the start of the American Revolution, soldiers who had been wounded while fighting nearby were brought to Philadelphia to receive medical aid. In 1777, when the British occupied the city, the nearby Walnut Street Jail was used to hold prisoners of war. Their conditions were inhumane, and prisoners would often die off within weeks of incarceration. The dead in the city were promptly transported to the square, where large trenches were being dug. Bodies were disposed of hastily and stacked on top of each other. In a letter to his wife Abigail, Founding Father John Adams wrote, The graves of the soldiers who have been buried in this ground, from the hospital and bettering house, during the course of last summer, fall and winter, dead of smallpox and camp diseases, are enough to make the heart of stone melt away. Many believe it was the action of no-name dump burials that caused a surge in paranormal activity during the 18th century. Some Washington Square visitors claim they've heard disembodied whispers and screams at the park. The full-body apparitions of soldiers have often been witnessed. Locals believe that the ghosts of Washington Square mean no harm. They're only trying to bring attention to the fact that the square is a burial site and should be respected as such. It wasn't until the committee erected the memorial in honor of the fallen soldiers that the ghostly activity began to subside, but it hasn't disappeared. The Ghosts of the 1793 Yellow Fever Epidemic Yellow Jack is known to have ravaged some of the country's most important cities during the 18th century. But before it came for cities like New Orleans and Savannah, it decimated Philadelphia. In just three months, the disease killed an estimated 5,000 residents. The outbreak was so devastating that prominent citizens fled Philadelphia, leaving the poor and working-class population to deal with the deaths. Bodies were piling up quickly, and there was no time for proper funeral practices. Large burial pits were once again dug in Washington Square to dispose of those who succumbed to the illness. 
When visitors to the park begin to feel ill, it's believed that it's caused by the spirits of the yellow fever victims buried underneath. Now, the next one, folks, is the poster boy or girl of this episode. And that is the fascinating tale of the Albat Witch, which is Lancaster's very own Little Bigfoot. And again, this comes from Lancaster County in the southeastern part of the state. You've heard of the Yeti, the Sasquatch, and Bigfoot. But how about Bigfoot's little brother? Meet the Albat Witch, a four-foot, legendary creature said to have inhabited the Chickies Rock area along the Susquehanna River. Sightings of the Albat Witch, reportedly a very slender four- to five-foot-tall ape-like creature covered in reddish-brown hair, date back four or five hundred years to the Susquehannock Indians who inhabited the area around Chickies Rock on the eastern shore of the Susquehanna. According to Christopher Vera, president of the Columbia Historic Preservation Society, he explained they named it the Albat Witch after the Apple Witch. Rick Fisher, a curator of the Columbia-based National Museum of Mysteries and Research Center, noted that the Susquehannocks also had ape-like creatures depicted on their war shields. We're not really sure if they had a belief in some ape-like creature or where they got the image from. Perhaps it was just a warlike image to ward off enemy tribes. While local lore attributes the name to them, the creature's association with apples appears to be more recent, more European vintage. Fisher said the Albat Witch gained the reputation in the late 1800s, when Chickies Rock was a popular picnic spot, complete with a trolley that ran there from Columbia. These creatures, the Albat Witch, would come out of the woods and steal apples from the people who were picnicking there. He explained, they would eat the apples and throw the cores back at the people. <laughs> Both men also have more modern accounts of the Albat Witch to share. Vera said a boyhood friend reported an encounter in the early 1980s, when this creature came eye to eye with him and pinned him to a tree. His brother yelled and the creature ran away. Fisher, who's been involved in paranormal research for many years, said he encountered something that looks similar to the generally accepted description of an Albat Witch on Valentine's Day of 2002, while en route to presenting a program on ghosts in Middletown. He said the stick creature with glowing yellow eyes was walking down the middle of a road near Chickie's Rock when he spotted it in his headlights, but it vanished when it realized it had been seen. There has been in previous years an Albat Witch Festival in Columbia in Lancaster County. Nate, have you been to that? Looks to be an interesting little day trip if not, and it's usually at the end of September or early October. Now the next one, folks, is one of the most famed haunted locations in Pennsylvania. And it's a location, a building, that's been around longer than most states in the U.S. have had settlers in them, let alone have been U.S. states. And this is the General Wayne Inn in the southeastern part of the state. The spirits of Hessians are spending their afterlife here, enjoying former pleasures. This mischievous group amused themselves, teasing the living. Other spirits who had connections to the building also have chosen to stick around. The General Wayne Inn building was built on land purchased by William Penn. Originally called the Wayside Inn, this building has been continuously in use since 1704, when a Quaker named Robert Jones went into the inn restaurant business. With the idea to serve travelers going to and from Philadelphia and Radnor on the old Lancaster Roadway, the Wayside Inn became the General Wayne Inn in 1793, when it was renamed after a local Revolutionary War hero. Because of its location, Near Marion Station, 
many Revolutionary War battles were fought around the area of the inn. Thus, this inn has the distinction of playing host to American patriots such as General George Washington and the Marquis de Lafayette, and to British redcoats and their hired Hessian soldiers as well. Control of the property passed briefly into Hessian hands during the Revolution. Legend has it that, unbeknownst to the Hessians, a secret tunnel had been built by the revolutionaries that led from the inn's cellar to an unobtrusive part of the neighboring field. Although accounts differ, one version holds that when a young Hessian soldier was sent to the cellar to procure wine for the victory celebration, he was ambushed and killed by revolutionaries hiding there. They promptly buried his body in the tunnel so that it would not give them away. Locals residing in what is now Lower Marion Township believe that the ghost of the Hessian soldier still haunts the inn. During the 1800s, many vacation Philadelphians came to the area and enjoyed fine dining at the General Wayne Inn. Such dishes as squirrel ragu and pigeon stew. Another famous guest was Edgar Allan Poe, who was a frequent visitor and diner. The poet penned a portion of The Raven at the General Wayne, and in 1843 he permanently left his mark by carving his initials into a windowsill with a diamond ring. Up until the 1930s, there used to be a glass window that Edgar had scratched his initials on, E-A-P. Besides being an inn and restaurant, this historical building in the past also has been used as a post office, a general store, and a social center for newly arrived Welsh immigrants. In 1970, when Mr. Johnson bought the General Wayne Inn, he was well aware of the ghostly tales he had heard since childhood about the place, growing up in Marion, now Marion Station. However, the reality of having 17-plus entities as unseen guests took him by surprise and took a while to adjust to his ghostly company. Thanks to the work of well-known New Jersey psychics Gene and Bill Quinn, Johnson was properly introduced to most of them, learning why they couldn't rest in their critique of the service offered at the inn. During a 1972 seance held in the dining room led by the Quinns, the entities communicated directly through the mediums present in an orderly manner, each taking a turn. Introduction of the spirits were, first, the spirit of Wilhelm. First to speak was the leader of the others, a friendly, courteous German-Hessian soldier by the name of Wilhelm, who liked to hang out in the cellar. He was killed during a Revolutionary War battle while fighting for the British. He couldn't rest because he was buried in only his underwear. Wilhelm was mortified that his superior officer had his body stripped of its clothes, which included not only his fine uniform, but his new boots as well, so another soldier could wear them. He said he was still searching for his uniform, so he could be buried honorably and properly. The next was the spirit of a little boy. He had lost his mother and couldn't stop crying to say the name of her or any of the circumstances of his death. Next were two young female entities, Sarah and Sadie. They were employed by the General Wayne Inn during the mid-1800s. They died before they could solve a distressing problem, which began when a, when a Persian rug peddler came to stay at the inn. He had told them that he was supposed to meet a potential buyer for his valuable rugs at the inn. When the buyer never showed up, the peddler asked them to be responsible for the rugs until he came back, as he was going to go and look for this buyer. When he never came back, these two women were worried that they would be accused of stealing the rugs. Death didn't relieve them of this worry, even 150 years later. They considered the people in the seance assembly to be intruders, and were reluctant to talk about how they had died so young. 
I guess is that perhaps their deaths were tied into the rug somehow. The next were another eight Hessian soldiers. They also made a brief appearance, haunting the inn, perhaps because they couldn't accept their own deaths on the battlefield and were not ready to go to the other side. The next was the spirit of a Native American or an African American. The spirit also made an appearance, as well as others, but he didn't say much. Now, they did critique some of the things in the General Wayne Inn during this seance. All the entities present were generally satisfied with the afterlife at the inn, but had a few improvements to suggest. While they loved the dinner music provided for the diners, they hated the crash of the drummer's cymbals. While they thought the tea, which they drank constantly, was beyond compare, the gin, beer, and wine didn't taste quite right and wasn't up to their standards concerning spirits. Now, who better is an expert on spirits than spirits? Spirits of Unseen Soldiers To see if his unseen soldier guests or any others were using the bar, Johnson borrowed a tape recorder from the Quins. He heard for himself evidence that despite not liking modern alcoholic drinks, the soldiers or others were going to the bar late at night. The tape recorder picked up sounds in the empty building, the noise of swiveling bar stools, the water faucet being turned on, and the glass catching the water, which all began hours after closing time. The Spirit of Ludwig In 1976, Ludwig, another Hessian soldier that wasn't present at the 72 seance, made an appearance to a part-time contractor or psychic named Mark Benio. The week that Johnson was on vacation, Ludwig began to appear every night at 2 a.m. in Benio's bedroom and sat on his bed. He told Benio that he had been killed in the Revolutionary War battle and that his bones were buried in the cellar wall of the inn. He pleaded with Benio to dig up his remains and bury whatever he found properly in a cemetery. After getting permission from Johnson, Benio excavated the cellar and found a small, unknown room that was under the inn's parking lot. He uncovered some pottery and some unidentified bones. After burying the bones properly, Ludwig was satisfied and was finally at peace. But Ludwig was far from the only Hessian haunting the General Wayne Inn. Another Hessian soldier, whose picture hung in the big dining room, had been seen by several employees. He could be a bit of a bully. He scared poor Nathan, who was sweeping the dining room, by striding menacingly up to Nathan with a glare in his eye and walking right through the now terrified Nathan, who left in a hurry, leaving the floor unswept. Johnson, of course, understood. A luncheon hostess personally met several German soldiers. A visual sighting of a Hessian soldier sitting slumped at the bar was made by a customer who was peering through the inn's front window late one Monday night. The inn is always closed on Mondays. A playful game that the dead soldiers enjoyed for over a year was blowing on the necks of the young women, sitting on bar stools. The soldiers, who had a history of mischievous behavior, are suspected as the ones who liked to play tricks on Johnson's wife. Once when she was trying to help the accountant with various chores in the office on the third floor, she was having a hard time adding up the totals on the adding machine. After trying several times to add up the numbers and getting the wrong totals, she tested the machine with 2 plus 2, and it came out 5. She immediately suspected that someone was mischievously tinkering with the machine, so she impulsively ordered the guys out of the room, scolding them, telling them that she had work to do. The machine worked perfectly after that, with no recurring problems. Ghosts are often reported to be fascinated with anything electric. Though the General Wayne Inn changed hands throughout the years, its eerie activity continued. Bart Johnson owned the property throughout the 70s and 80s, as you've heard. 
He claimed that one night, a loud bang interrupted a conversation he had been having with two of his friends. They looked up and saw a cannonball rolling across the floor. When Johnson stood to pick it up, the cannonball vanished into thin air. Another time after hosting a party, Johnson received numerous compliments from the guests about the man who mingled with the crowd while dressed in period clothing. The partygoers presumed Johnson had hired an actor. Johnson, of course, claimed he hired no such person. Over the years, there have been many other stories of unusual incidents, but in 1996, it became the scene of a real-life murder. In 1996, co-owners Mr. James E. Webb and Guy Cilio, who were also best friends, were struggling financially. On the day after Christmas 1996, Guy Cilio supposedly shot to death Webb in one of the third-floor offices. Cilio was convicted of the murder and sentenced to life in prison. Cilio claimed that it was his own hurt mistress, 20-year-old Felicia, a chef at the General Wayne Inn, who shot Webb in revenge, because Cilio refused to leave his wife for her. Webb had strongly disapproved of the affair between Felicia and Cilio. Felicia later killed herself. So yeah, folks, very interesting haunted location there. And the latest that I've heard is that the inn has been out of use for quite a few years, and that it has been bought by a local Jewish businessman, and that he wants to renovate it and make it into a fine kosher dining establishment. We'll be interesting to see what happens, but I don't know. I haven't looked into what it's like right now, but that was what I read in one of the articles. So the next one is a very uncommon tale of hermits. And this is the white hermit who lived naked under Mount Joy. And he lived under the town of Mount Joy in the southeastern part of the state. Now we travel 40 feet below street level to the catacombs of Boob's Brewery to hear about the legend of the white hermit. This white-bearded fellow was said to wander the underground caves of Mount Joy naked, even in the middle of winter. What makes this story, the legend of the white hermit, so unique is the strong possibility that it's true. It just sounds a little too unusual to be made up. Forty feet below street level, in the vein of limestone, lies a series of caves, naturally formed under Mount Joy. Local folklore speaks of a legend of a hermit that called these caves home in the mid-18th century. The white hermit was from Scotland, and when he was young he was trying to be a schoolteacher. His mother died, his father remarried to another woman, and soon they had a baby. He didn't get along with his stepmother at all, and one time when his father was away in the middle of winter, the stepmother and he got in a nasty argument. Apparently in an attempt to end the argument, he pushed his stepmother and his baby sibling out the door and unfortunately left them out there too long, and they died. He immediately departed for America. He wanted to escape, and so he got on a ship and came to Philadelphia. He settled in Lancaster. Legend says that he got a school teaching job in Lancaster and was settling into becoming an upstanding local citizen. But fate was soon to intervene, and one day on the streets of Lancaster, he saw someone he knew from his hometown in Scotland. He panicked and headed west. Apparently, he decided to move into and hide and live in the caves underneath Mount Joy. At one time, there were many large passageways and caverns under much of what we now call Mount Joy. But after development construction and the filling of modern utilities throughout the town, the catacombs at Booby's Brewery, which were once used as refrigeration cellars, are about all that remain of these underground caves. Some believe that the hermit's main cave was directly under where Boobies stands today. These caves were said to have extended for miles with entrances at various parts of Mount Joy, 
The hermit survived in these caves and went unnoticed by natives and colonists for many years. By the time they were aware of his existence, the hermit had grown a long, white, unkept beard, which is how he became known as the White Hermit. However, legend says, he was soon known as the Naked Hermit, as apparently one day God spoke to him that he was supposed to remove his clothes and go naked to atone for his sins. So he followed God's orders, and he took off his clothes and apparently never put them back on. The Mount Joy locals would occasionally see this gentleman, even in the middle of winter, and all that he had on was his long white hair. The last time anyone claims to have seen the hermit was around 1765. Legend says that he perished in these caves and now haunts the underground of Mount Joy. Boobies has fully embraced the legend and on a few occasions paid homage to the cave dweller. In honor of the white hermit, they brewed a white hermit beer at Boobies, and they have said they will definitely do it again in future. The white hermit is just one of many spirits said to haunt the brewery. Numerous young and especially female hostesses recount seeing the same young woman in a long dress with her hair tied up in a bun. The mysteries that have more potential to be explained, like the Underground Railroad connection and the legend of the White Hermit, are just waiting to be solved. The legends also have endured in Mount Joy that slaves were hidden in the cave by abolitionists. There has also been talk of excavating the lower caves that may go below and beyond the catacombs, the same caves that we've been talking about. At the very least, maybe one day we will find something archaeologically interesting. The current hypothesis is that the hermit died somewhere in the caves. So if they ever do get to do a thorough investigation of the cave, who knows? They may indeed find the skeleton of the mysterious white hermit. Now the next one, folks, is another one that harkens back to revolutionary days, and I'm sure you're sensing a pattern, but the state is so old, you can see why. And this is the story of Fort Mifflin, which is in Philadelphia in the southeast. This little-known revolutionary war fort is supposedly haunted by the ghosts of its past. Sometimes dubbed the fort that saved America, this site is one you probably didn't learn about in history class. Built by the British in 1771 to protect the wealthy colonial city of Philadelphia, Fort Mifflin was in American hands when the seeds of revolution took root. As General George Washington suffered a series of defeats in the Philadelphia Campaign in the fall of 1777, he recognized the importance of disrupting the supply route for the British Army occupying Philadelphia. Washington ordered the garrison at the little fort to hold to the last extremity as they faced off against the mightiest navy of the 18th century world. Ultimately surrounded on three sides and out of ammunition and black powder, the garrison evacuated the fort to Fort Mercer. A detail of 40 young soldiers remained behind to spike the last 10 functioning cannon and set fire to any valuable remains. They left the distinctive 13-stripe flag flying, as they too finally rode away from the burning fort. Although defeated, Fort Mifflin never surrendered. General Washington used the time to establish winter headquarters at Valley Forge, emerging the following spring better trained and organized, and with the official support of France. The fort was rebuilt beginning in the late 18th century, and as part of the first and second systems of seacoast fortifications, answered every call to service over three centuries. As such, one visit to Fort Mifflin lets you stand on a Revolutionary War battlefield, a Civil War prison, and on the site of a home front defense in World War II. Perhaps because of the many hardships suffered there, the fort is also on just about every list of the most haunted locations in the country. Visitors can explore the casements, bomb-proof shelters featured on ghost hunters, and many buildings and magazines 
to decide if there are any spooky permanent residents lingering within the site. It's now a tourist attraction featuring guides in historical dress and the site of many war reenactments, but not all of them seem to be live actors. The second floor balcony of the barracks is often visited by the spirit of the lamplighter. This is the man who lit the oil lamps every evening, and though he's a pale and barely discernible figure in the twilight, people can see he's carrying a long pole with a dimly flickering light on the end. The casements, which were probably the most heavily bombarded area during the siege of 1777, are the site of too many sightings to number. The visions are pale outlines that could be written off as the figments of an overactive imagination if it weren't for their frequency. But even the most visible of the apparitions is still missing some detail. He's called the Faceless Man, and he's supposedly the ghost of a war criminal held in the cells during the Civil War. William Howe was his name, and for killing his superior and desertion of duty in wartime, he was held in Fort Mifflin before being hanged. When he appears these days, he's fairly easy to see, they say, except that his face is in shadows. The reason? Before hanging, deserters supposedly had their heads tied up in black bags as a mark of their shame. The Screaming Lady is the loudest of the ghosts at Fort Mifflin. She's never seen, but wails from the old officer's quarters, where she appears to be living out an eternity of regret for disowning her daughter. She is supposedly the soul of Elizabeth Pratt, an 18th century neighbor of the fort whose daughter took up with an officer. Elizabeth renounced and threw out her daughter, who died shortly after from dysentery. Consumed with guilt at consigning her daughter to this fate, the story goes that she took her own life. She's not the only spectral sound to be heard at the fort. Near the blacksmith's shop, the rhythmic clash of hammer against anvil often sounds out, only to be silenced when people come by to peer into the empty but slightly echoing room. Now, folks, we've got to have some cryptids to go along with the Albatch Witch. So here's um, here's another one, which is known as the Kettle Creek Monster, or the West Branch Dugong, or the Susquehanna Seal. It's from Lock Haven in Clinton County in the north-central part of the state. A creature with many names, this elusive legend has been said to lurk in the waters of the Susquehanna River near Lock Haven in Clinton County. The Kettle Creek Monster, West Branch Dugong, or Susquehanna seal, is a marine creature that dates back over a century. An article in the Daily Democrat from February 27, 1897, describes the travels of a creature that existed before the valley was settled, making its way up the river and settling in the area between present-day Lock Haven and Kettle Creek. It is detailed as a marine animal or sea monster, with the bulk of an ox or hippopotamus. The monster was not the form or image of anything else on earth, and was said to make a horrible howling and thrashing at night. It was often blamed for the spilling or capsizing of lumber rafts at the time. Reports of the creature became less and less frequent in the later 1800s. Many believe it to have died or escaped to the ocean through underground caverns. Sea lion, shark, whale, or some prehistoric dinosaur. The true identity of the creature remains a mystery. Is the Kettle Creek Monster, West Branch Dugong, Sisquehanna Seal really gone? Tread carefully next time you paddle your way through this section of the Greenway. And to go with that, folks, is the Susquehanna Mystery Thing, which is from Northumberland County in the central eastern part of the state. Another marine mystery is said to lurk in Susquehanna waters near the river's confluence in Northumberland County. Seen as recently as the 2000s, the Susquehanna Mystery Thing 
was publicized by outdoor guide and writer Ken Maurer of Sunbury's The Daily Item. Upon being asked during a panel discussion about the most mysterious sighting while in the wild, wild, Maurer recalled a large creature that he saw swimming in the Susquehanna River. A friend of Maurer's, who had also seen the creature, described it as a small submarine about to surface. On Maurer's own sighting, he said, it pushed a wake that made waves that lapped out on the shoreline. At about 50 yards, it sank out of sight. Creepy. Over the next year or two, I saw it several times, and it always sank out of sight before it got close enough to be seen clearly. The account received mixed reactions, some questioning the reporter's encounters, others coming forward with similar sightings in the area. Has the Susquehanna Seal of Clinton County relocated to new waters? One thing is for sure, the Susquehanna mystery thing would be a spooky sight to see from a kayak in the Greenway waters of Northumberland County. Yeah, folks, that's not something I would necessarily want to see. Now, folks, this is a very interesting one. There's not a lot about this, but I found it a very interesting little story. And this is one that I would reckon Nate hasn't heard of. So this is the tale of Reuben's Grave from Ford City in the central western part of the state. In Shot Cemetery once was a stone that read in part, Reuben, son of Daniel and Mary A. Briney, died June 2, 1863, aged 17 years, 17 days. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so will you be. Remember me as you pass by. Prepare to die and follow me. Pretty spooky all by itself, huh? Well, it gets weirder. Reuben was a broken-hearted teen, and in his pain caused by love gone bad, he rode to a tree near the cemetery on his white steed. He put a noose around his neck, tossed and looped the other end of the rope around a branch, and spurred his horse forward. Some say he met his fate accidentally. But what kind of spook story would that make? Goodbye, veil of tears. Hello, light on the other side. If it were only so easy. It's claimed that to this day he can be seen riding on the hillside at night atop his white stallion with flaming red eyes, still searching for his lost love. And woe to those who see him. They're said to be doomed to die a horrible death, just like Reuben's. Good luck trying to find his tombstone. The memorial was toppled and broken 35 years ago and eventually hauled away. All that's left now is an unmarked footer, alleged to be near the infamous hanging tree. So how do we know what the tombstone said? Because a photo of the broken stone and its inscription was part of Ford City High School's 1974 yearbook, no doubt a reminder of the impetuousness and passion of youth. So yeah, folks, that's an interesting one. And Nate, let me know what you think about that one. Now, the next one here, folks, is also from Clinton County. Clinton County does seem to be an epicenter of a lot of this stuff. And this is the story of the Gitwoggle. Let's say you're out hiking. You're on one of the trails in Clinton County. It doesn't matter which one. Choose your favorite. But imagine you're hiking in the woods, and you look up ahead and see a creature on the trail. It seems to be a mishmash of several animals, with the base animal being a wolf. You raise your camera to get a photo, but it darts into the forest. You've just encountered the Gitwoggle, and it's the official monster of Clinton County. Stories of the Gilwoggle date back to the mid-1800s, and on July 21, 2011, the government of Clinton County proclaimed it to be the county's official monster. It's a creature of legend, and if you're lucky, you might even spot one. The, Gil the Gilwoggle was, according to legend, a kind of artificial werewolf that could be conjured or summoned by a witch. Legends of this thing were in the West Keating Township back in the 1800s, where an old woman named Belle Confer 
told her grandchildren bedtime stories about the thing. Her grandson, George Roan, was so affected by the stories that he grew up to write them down in Keystone Folklore Quarterly, preserving them for future generations. The Gilwoggle is not the easiest creature in the world to physically describe. It was about six feet tall, shaped like a wolf, and stood on its back legs. Instead of front paws, it had bird's claws, and instead of back feet, it had horse's hooves. This was to confuse trackers trying to follow it. The legends all involved local women, who were believed to be witches, casting spells to conjure up one of these things when a nearby farmer offended them. They would send the Gilwoggle to harass the farmer, which often took the form of annoying stunts and petty vandalism. The Gilwoggles did not seem to be violent for the most part. Farmers would wake up and find their crops trampled, tools damaged, and Gilwoggle tracks around the barn. In one of the more fantastic stories, a farmer found his cows frightened and trying to smoke a portion of a corn stalk to calm them. So, um, I guess the cows weren't smoking cannabis back then, Dave. Apparently, there was plenty of witches living it up on Keating Mountain in the 1870s. If a witch was offended or angry, she'd cast a spell to create, or summon, the story's not real clear on that part, the Gilwoggle, which would then attack the local person or family the witch was angry at. The Gilwoggle's tactics ran more towards harassment than flat-out injury. They would damage crops, frighten livestock, and spread sickness. There have been a few Gilwoggle legends, all of them from up in the northern Clinton County area, east and west Keating. If you think about it population-wise, the number of Gilwoggles is probably equal to the number of people up there. If the Gilwoggles ever decide to vote in local elections, we're all going to be in trouble. There's a hero figure that often appears in these stories too, Loop Hill Ike, and I talked about him a bit during the Swamp Angel part. Loop Hill Ike lived in Keating Township and was depicted in the stories as a sort of freelance paranormal expert. In many old legends from the area, he was said to be the only guy who could help with witches, ghosts, and definitely with gilwoggles. The farmers would ask for his help, and Ike would counteract the spells. If that didn't work, he would grab his shotgun, go to the witch's cabin, and burn it down. Loop Hill Ike was not a man to be messed with. Loop Hill Ike was actually based on a real guy, Isaac Gaines. Gaines lived in the Keating area from 1837 to 1915 and was the grandson of an escaped slave from Virginia. He married into the Confer family, which means Sarah Confer told her grandson stories that cast his own uncle as a sort of professional monster hunter. As Isaac Gaines has been buried in First McGonagall Cemetery in the Clearfield area since 1915, it's safe to say he's dead by now. Oddly, people driving near the Clearfield-Clinton border have reported seeing bipedal wolves, running beside the road. With a quick glance, a gilwoggle might easily be described as a bipedal wolf, so perhaps the creatures are lurking around the grave of their old adversary. The gilwoggle has even been known to get closer to civilization, though it's been a while. In February of 1909, when a panic over the Jersey Devil reached a peak, creatures were sighted at night, lurking on rooftops in downtown Lock Haven. The newspapers speculated at the time that this might be the gilwoggle, coming into town in search of prey. Is the Gilwoggle real, or just an old legend? It's hard to say for sure, but one thing is certain. When you're visiting Clinton and Clearfield counties, both located along the I-80 frontier landscape of Pennsylvania wilds, bring your camera, and don't offend any witches. Now folks, we've got a few more here to go through. The next one is the Grumblethorpe Mansion in Philadelphia as well. The story behind Philadelphia's most haunted house will give you nightmares. Philadelphia is full of spooky haunted houses, 
graveyards, and historic sites. Grumblethorpe Manor is one of these places, a nearly 300-year-old building that was the home of a wealthy Philadelphian wine vendor. The storied history of Grumblethorpe tells of a gruesome past where a British general was mortally wounded, his blood still stains the floor in the parlor, by the way, and where a family hid from the yellow fever epidemic. Though Grumblethorpe is currently used as everything from a farmer's market to a reenactment site, there's no denying its spooky history and haunted halls that have been the site of unexplained paranormal happenings. Grumblethorpe was built by John Wister in 1744. The wealthy Philadelphian built the house just outside of Center City to be his family's estate. British General James Agnew made Grumblethorpe his headquarter during the Battle of Germantown. Agnew was mortally wounded in the battle and retreated to the manor. There he bled to death in the parlor. And as I said, to this day you can still see his blood staining the wooden floor, and his ghost is said to haunt the home. Black mist has been seen rising from the stain, and pain moans are often heard in the room where he died. The home was also a sanctuary for the Wisner family during the yellow fever epidemic. One of the property's common ghosts, a housemaid named Justina, was a victim of the yellow fever in the city. The Wisner family reported seeing Justina in the bedroom one night, despite knowing she was at another Wisner property. The next morning, they were made aware of Justina's overnight death. The historic haunted home is still the site of many happenings. There are often ghost tours and paranormal investigations hosted by various Philadelphia entertainment and investigation companies, such as the original Philadelphia Ghost Tour Company. The mansion is also the site of the reenactment of the Battle of Germantown, as well as the after-party Grumblefest. Today, you can also visit Grumblethorpe as a farmer's market, or for many public events the property hosts all year long. While you're on the grounds, though, keep an eye out for spirits that are seeking their peace in one of the most haunted houses in Philadelphia. And what an awesome name, folks, Grumblethorpe. I mean, that is the awesome name for a haunted mansion, I think. Now, the next one here is a story of the Blue Lady of Woodland Hall. And this is in and around Pittsburgh. So again, Nate, this is near you. Woodland Hall on the campus of Chatham University is where Chatham's most famous spirit lives, the Blue Lady of Woodland Hall. Students wake up with the vision of a woman hovering above them, dressed in a blue chiffon dress. But she shares the spotlight with the ghost of a young boy, who once grabbed a hapless student by the ankle while imploring her to play with him. The specter had a good grip. He left a bruise on her ankle. His haunt, the fourth floor, is always cold. According to some faculty, Woodland Hall was once a mental hospital, and a woman in a blue dress, who is assumed to have been a patient, has been reported on the fourth floor usually hovering above sleeping residents. The ghost, however, has not been seen recently. But I did track down three accounts from students. 1. I have an emotional support cat, and I lived in Fikes last year, so that's Fikes Hall, where the blue lady would haunt other students. However, my cat was friends with her. There were times he would meow at walls and chase things that I couldn't see. Because she liked my cat, she never did anything to freak me out. I consider myself lucky. I don't live in Fikes anymore, but I hope she has another cat friend. Number two. I met the Blue Lady last year in one of Woodland Hall's dorms. I was doing an overnight lacrosse camp for three days and sharing a double dorm with another lacrosse camper. I woke up that night and looked at my surroundings. At the end of my bed, I saw a shadowy figure standing there looking at me. The figure looked like it could be a woman's figure. It was tall, lean, and the head was facing toward me. In terror, I looked at my roommate and she was hiding underneath her blanket. 
I did the same and stayed until sunrise. To this day, I am still haunted by that night and sometimes hesitate when I go near Woodland Hall. And third and last is one evening my roommate, Aria Dietrich, and I were in our dorm, relaxing on our beds. Aria was watching Netflix on her iPad when she looked up to the ceiling to see faint fingerprint trails running to the end of her bed. There were scratch marks and more trails on her ceiling. She asked me to come over to her bed and to look, and I freaked out when I saw it. Aria said the fingerprints looked small and lean, like an adult woman's. Neither Aria or myself made those marks above the bed. So yeah, folks, it, uh, some of these, you know, you'll hear them and you'll go, well, there's not a lot to it, but I found those three fascinating stories from students in the last few years. So uh, yeah, seems like something's definitely going on at Woodland Hall. And last but not least, folks, one of the most famous things to ever happen in the state of Pennsylvania was the ongoing three-day battle of Gettysburg during the American Civil War. And I don't know if it still is, but I know for years and years, Gettysburg was the bloodiest day in the history of America as far as American soldiers being killed in one battle. Stroll Gettysburg's darkened streets on any autumn evening, and you'll see guides in period costume leading packs of uneasy tourists from one macabre site to the next. Lanterns held aloft. Considered one of the most haunted places in the country, if not the world, Gettysburg has nurtured an appropriately robust ghost tour industry. According to Destination Gettysburg, a tourism bureau, there are 10 ghost tour and paranormal investigation companies operating in the town, which boasts a population of 7,700. For many visitors, the sober project of commemorating the dead by day at the Gettysburg National Military Park is followed by a light-hearted, if more viscerally frightening, escape at night. The park rangers won't answer any questions about ghosts, which is fine with me. We'll handle the ghost, says Mark Nesbitt, founder of the Ghosts of Gettysburg's Candlelight Walking Tours. Folklore is history, too. For over 100 years, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, has been flooded by reports of paranormal activity. From phantom cries of wounded soldiers to lifelike apparitions, Many visitors to Gettysburg have been touched by its haunting past. Gettysburg was the site where Confederate and Union armies clashed on July 1, 1863. The battle was a three-day bloodbath that would change American history forever. When the cannon smoke cleared, the Union soldiers had won, but nearly 5,000 horses and 50,000 men lay dead or dying. Many of the Confederate soldiers never received a proper burial. Now, more than 14 decades later, these unsettled spirits may still linger in Gettysburg. This historic town is home to a surprising number of phantom forms captured in photography, including the ghost of what appears to be Confederate General Robert E. Lee. The Daniel Lady Farm The Daniel Lady Farm was used as the Confederate Army's field hospital. Soldiers who suffered from artillery wounds, a lot of chest wounds and lost limbs, were brought to the farm to recover or to suffer through their final moments of their lives. The farmhouse and barn saw the share of ghastly horror. The ghosts of General Isaac Ewell and his corps of 10,000 still reportedly haunt the farm. The Cash Town Inn Just eight miles west of the tiny town, Cash Town Inn was the site where the first soldier was killed during the Gettysburg Campaign of the Civil War. The current owners believe they have proof of their ghostly visitors. Jack Palandio and his wife have pictures from 1987 through 2007 of strange orbs and skeletons showing up in their photos. According to Mr. Palladino, he and his guests have heard their share of thumping doors. 
They've also witnessed lights turning on and off on their own and doors locking and unlocking themselves. The Gettysburg Hotel The history of the Gettysburg Hotel is filled with tales of eerie hauntings. A ghost of a woman has been seen dancing in the hotel's ballroom. Paranormal investigators believe the spirit of Union soldier James Culbertson of Company K, Pennsylvania Reserves, still roams around the hotel. The Baldadary Inn While the Baldadary Inn offers spectacular views of the countryside, it sometimes gives visitors a terrifying glimpse of life after death. Located on Hospital Road, the inn served as a Union field hospital during day two of the Battle of, of Gettysburg. Suzanne Lonke, the owner, has collected dozens of stories and photos of her guests' ghostly encounters. According to a psychic, the inn appears to be haunted by Confederate soldiers buried underneath a nearby tennis court. The Ghost Train Tourists can also take a 90-minute ride on The Ghost Train, the only ghost tour in Gettysburg that takes visitors across the actual battlefield. One of the tour's storytellers says he and passengers have smelled cigar smoke and seen the souls of soldiers roaming on the train or near the tracks while traveling across the historic battlefield. Well, folks, that would be enough to creep me out. I think I would pack my bags and turn around and go home. I do hope that you enjoyed our latest trip through the long-settled state of Pennsylvania, and hopefully you've learned as much as I have. It's been an amazing four-part series, and I'm sure we will be back again before too much time passes. Once again, thank you to Nate Odd for coming on for two excellent episodes, and I'm sure we'll be doing more in the future. Now, as always, folks, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, which is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached. Take care, my friends, and I'll talk to you later.